Greetings, and welcome to the podcast. Perhaps when you were younger, maybe much younger, you and your friends were like a gang, a close-knit group not willing to easily accept new members. Maybe there were no formal rules for deciding who's in and who's out. Maybe it was something more natural, and it always seemed like there were rival gangs looking for trouble. Now, I'm talking about elementary school-age kids, so the gangs mentioned here should be taken to be of a more innocent nature, though not too innocent. Imagine you're around seven or eight, and a group of kids who you normally don't hang around with invite you to join them in some game they've been playing in an open field near your neighborhood. In one part of that field, there are several tall mounds, and you take turns surprising each other by flying over the tops of the tiny hills, pretending to be soldiers storming the enemy's hiding spots. It isn't long before a rival group makes its way over to the field and challenges your group to a rock fight. You notice that here and there are neat piles of rocks seemingly at the ready for just such an occasion. Before you know it, the members of the rival group are in full retreat as the kids you'd been playing war with are now relentlessly grabbing rocks and hurling them at the backs of the invaders who take cover behind a nearby mound and start raining projectiles down on you from their relatively safe position. Hidden behind a mound yourselves, you and a few others start lobbing rocks over the top in hopes of at least keeping the enemy from getting too close. However, a few of the bravest or most foolish members of your group are standing near the top of your mound, their upper bodies fully exposed and their heaving rocks straight at the top of the enemy mound where you guess there are some equally reckless kids doing the same since there are stones whizzing over the top of your mound at fairly high velocities. Somehow their bravery inspires you and you go to the top of your mound and join the fray. You hear and feel the rocks that hit your mound, their thuds providing the beat to a war symphony going on in your head. And you hear the ones that buzz past your head too close for comfort. You're aware of everything, the look of the fear in the eyes of some members of the rival group, and the look of insane anger in the eyes of others. You feel a few distracting drops of rain on your forehead and cheek. Yet, you feel invincible. The sounds of your group, as well as the other, cheering and cursing, strengthen your resolve to nail one of the others with a laser beam-like shot to the top of the head. And you imagine that you have that look of insanity in your eyes, too. Before long, someone in your group is struck in the forehead and starts bleeding profusely. The putative leader of your group calls time, and surprisingly, the enemy group complies. The kid with the gash on his forehead never cries, though. He only seems worried that his father is going to give him the belt when he gets home. He wears the scar on his forehead as a badge of honor for a while, but by the sixth grade, he's quite embarrassed by it. In the last episode, Kant's idea of synthesis as a cognitive mechanism was introduced. We limited our discussion to synthesis as it pertains to cognizing objects. Recall that intuition is the way in which a cognition relates immediately to objects and is what thought points to. To say that thought points to intuition is to say that the understanding is ready to bring the manifold of presentations under concepts. To do that, the manifold must be synthesized and the resulting synthesis brought to concepts by a function of the understanding. But what is it exactly that we mean by synthesis of a manifold? or a manifold of intuition. Recall that Kant says space is nothing but the mere form of all appearances of the outer senses. Objects you take to be external to you are represented within you. These appearances of objects in space are arranged in some manner, say side by side with a certain distance between them, and only able to be represented in this way at all because you have a pure a priori representation of space in you. Kant calls this form of appearances pure intuition. 
In short, your mind imposes a spatial framework onto your representations of the world. Hopefully you also recall that time is the other a priori pure intuition. So to speak of the manifold of intuition is to speak of that a priori spatio-temporal framework within you that may end up decorated with appearances, presentations of objects outside you. Prior to synthesis, no cognition is possible and it might help to think of the manifold of intuition at this point as a soup of appearances. After synthesis, undetermined presentations are unified in one clear presentation, and there is awareness. In the 21st century, it's easy to think of this in terms of implementations of logical, arithmetic, and symbolic functions by networks of neurons in the brain. But Kant, as a philosopher, was content with keeping his theory of the mind fairly abstract. Still, though, the dominant model of the mind in contemporary cognitive science research has many of Kant's ideas built into its very foundation. We've only just gotten started with synthesis and the search for a priori concepts deep inside the mind that determine the fundamental nature of human cognition, and we'll continue with that next time. But in closing, I'd like to now address the elephant in the room. Actually, I'll let philosopher P.F. Strawson address the issue. In his book, The Bounds of Sense, he writes, quote, since Kant regards the necessary unity and connectedness of experience as being, like all transcendental necessities, the product of the mind's operations, he feels himself obliged to give some account of those operations. Such an account is obtained by thinking of the necessary unity of experience as produced by our faculties, specifically by memory and imagination controlled by understanding, out of impressions or data of sense themselves, unconnected and separate. And this process of producing unity is called, by Kant, synthesis. The theory of synthesis, like any essay in transcendental psychology, is exposed to the ad hominem objection that we can claim no empirical knowledge of its truth, for this would be to claim empirical knowledge of that which is held to be the antecedent condition of empirical knowledge. Belief in the occurrence of the process of synthesis as an antecedent condition of experience, and belief in the antecedent occurrence of disconnected impressions as materials for the process to work on, are beliefs which support each other and are necessary to each other. But, by hypothesis, experience can support neither belief, and since neither is necessary to the strictly analytical argument, the entire theory is best regarded as one of the aberrations into which Kant's explanatory model inevitably led him." Unquote. The book The Bounds of Sense has long been considered an essential companion piece for those seriously studying the critique of pure reason, and Strassen clearly understands as well as anyone what Kant put into his epic work. But what it seems nobody can agree on is what Kant thought was allowable in his so-called transcendental arguments. Kant says that ideas about things that can't be verified by direct experience don't really add to our knowledge of the world. So talking about the conditions necessary for consciousness, let alone knowledge at all, seems to be treading in the realm of the noumena. Personally, I think Strassen is being a bit uncharitable here in his reading of Kant, but Kant surely didn't make it easy for others to defend his approach in the critique. Think about how you would explain consciousness just by using your own experience. At the very least, when you look at another person standing there in the world, say near a tall building, surrounded by cars, other people, etc., you take it that she has mostly the same spatio-temporal experience of the world as you do. When you look out at the world, you feel as if you're right there in the middle of everything. The situational model in your mind gives you a sense of what's to the right and left of you, what's above and below you. But if the mind is inside you, how does the world get imported into it, and displayed in such a way that you're able to understand how you stand in relation to the things around you spatio-temporally? Certainly that tall building doesn't get imported into your head. 
you end up with a representation of it. So how does that happen? Thinking empirically, we disregard the notion of a transcendent soul and just think about the physical processes that would give you a representation of the world outside your skull. You might imagine the image of the building coming in through the eyes, shrunk down according to the laws of optics, and the image displayed inside you. But how? On a screen or something? That's ridiculous. Then what would be looking at the screen to take in the image? Clearly, incoming sense data needs to be processed in such a way that a situational model presents itself in your mind and gives you a sense of the relative sizes of things and the distances between them, and of course your position relative to all of them. Asking about what conditions would be necessary to give us experiences that would match up with what we observe every day. That's what Kant's transcendental deductions are about. He's certainly not spitballing in the critique, though he would have to admit that empirical science wasn't going to justify his reasoning anytime soon after he wrote the book. But he must have felt confident that he was on to something. But some people don't like such inquiries in books on epistemology, and there you go. Anyway, as always... Thanks for listening. Until next time.